Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. As one of the founding members of the Slits, Viv Albertine ruptured rock music's linear progression, affecting a genuine and shocking break with what had come before. They combined dub reggae, free jazz, early hip-hop, funk and punk into a unique new sound. Viv Albertine has many strings to her bow, however, and has recently delivered a shocking and brilliantly written autobiography, Clothes Music Boys. It's my pleasure to introduce the British Masters, Viv Albertine. Hi. Hi. Uh, I've read hundreds and hundreds of rockstar autobiographies, and they either completely obscure the truth, or they shore up an unbelievable myth of the rock star persona. Mm. And yours does neither of those things, does it? No. In fact, I was thinking of calling it deconstruction of a legend because when I came back after 25 years of, you know, not playing or anything, people saying, oh, Viv, you're a legend. And behind anyone who's had any little success is a catalogue of mistakes and disasters. And so I wanted to strip everything away as a woman, as a creative person, and, and show what went into my three tiny little blips of success in my life, you know. You almost portray punk as something that just a bunch of people who kind of knew each other, they kind of drifted into it and then drifted out of it. And it's refreshing to see it rather than this kind of Hollywood-style myth of punk now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I didn't set out, well, I'm going to put the record straight, you know, Sid was like this, John was like this, and this is how punk happened. I literally wrote everything as I saw it, and I, I never wrote about anything if I wasn't in the room. It's interesting. On one level, the book is really a primer of very cool underground music. I mean, like, on every page, it's... Sun Ra, Ornette Coleman, this heat. I, I didn't want to push it in people's faces. A lot of people said, oh, you should say more about how into music you were before. But I thought, no, I'm just going to chart it and let the reader decide. I was utterly t swept away by it, um, and I knew everything about all music. And, and I went on and on reading the music papers, um, going to gigs, working in music venues whenever I could. It was a very sort of open culture. You know, you could go and see Soft Machine playing alongside Fleetwood Mac, playing alongside the Third Ear Band, playing alongside the Rolling Stones, if you were in that alternative culture. And I really think that's something that's missing now. We don't really have a counterculture, an alternative culture that goes against consumerism and capitalism and the establishment and, and buying a house and all that side of it. You know, we had an alternative back then. I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, and it's really easy to forget 
just how snide this country was, especially if you were, lived in working-class areas. Yeah, um, you know, people think, oh, the 70s, you know, it's all orange and brown fabrics and sort of curvy white plastic furniture. They, they, they see the design of the 70s, which, again, wasn't around much in people's houses, and they think the 70s were cool, but they were very misogynistic. You know, it was a very patriarchal society. We were utterly ignored. We, nothing was expected of us. Nothing was wanted from us. We, we were non-people. But the only good side about that is that you could get up to mischief before someone had even noticed you. So we were pulling bands off stage and getting on stage ourselves. We were dressing weirdly. You know, something was growing under, you know, the establishment's noses. To walk down the street sort of in, in a mixture of clothes that were signs of femininity all thrown together so I had my sort of brownie uniform that had been shrunk up you know big leather studded belt from a sex shop um, rubber stockings men's boots hairs hair all back comb black eyes because we didn't look like women looked in the 70s a lot of men and boys on the street thought that well we can beat you up then we can attack you you don't want to look like a woman we won't treat you like a woman women were treated as, you know, separate beings as objects. I mean, again, you never saw a picture of a naked woman or a topless woman that wasn't to sell products to men or for men's gaze and desire. And that's why the slits cover of us naked was for the first time saying, look, there's nothing wrong with our naked bodies, but we want to take them back. Thank you very much. It's such an iconic cover. Can you tell us about the day and how, because you hadn't set out to do that particular photograph, had you? It just happened. How did it end up being like that? We were put in this big studio in the, in the country. I think it belonged to Roxy Music or something, Brian Ferry. And uh, so we were roaming around. We got a bit sort of stir-crazy out there. And Penny Smith came to take the photographs. We wanted a female photographer. We thought we'd look a bit maybe tribal, paint on our faces. One thing led to another. Next thing, we were in the rose beds covering ourselves with mud. We, we knew very much that we had to have a very aggressive confrontational look. It, it mustn't in any way be a prurient cover. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of young boys and young women saw that cover and thought, at, at last, you know, a bit like I felt when I saw the Patti Smith cover, at last, somebody like me. So going back to the book, you, you certainly don't pull your punches, especially on yourself when it comes to relaying depression, sorrow, illness and injury. This must have been painful to write. It was. It was very painful to write. You know, people come up to me and say, oh, I think it's so great that you, you know, keep getting up again every time you were knocked down. Whereas I just thought, I keep getting knocked down. I'm rubbish at everything I do. So this is almost like a punk self-help book. (laughs) If you had an older sister who knew loads about life because she'd lived it. You know, you want someone who's been there telling you about life. And that's what I wanted the book to be, really, sort of hidden behind this kind of music memoir. I was actually at the London launch for your book at Lexington, where, very sadly, you couldn't attend because your mother had just died. Um, Did your mum get to read the book? Had you talked about it? I discussed all my whole life with my mother, my whole life. But these last two years, three years, when I was writing the book, she was, she was too ill to do that with. But she did say one thing right at the beginning. She said, oh, you're not going to use the C word, are you? And I went absolutely mad because I wanted this book to be me. And I said, yeah. yes, I'm going to use the C word. And don't start prescribing to me what's right and what's wrong. But when I use the C word, and I think I use it about three times in the book, it'll be very thought about don't you worry about that and she said oh no no I'm sorry I'm sorry you know what you're doing when it was written um and she was really sort of in the last few months of her life by then she she couldn't even hold the book she was so frail 
she wanted to devour that book. It was so amazing to see that there she was, passing into death, no doubt about it. We all knew it was just around the corner, but still she had this sort of hunger. I just only wish she could have known that Nigella Lawson tweeted about it. That, that to her would have been utter, utter sort of validation that I'd made it. Well, it's interesting you mention Nigella Lawson because, you know, the reach of this book has been amazing. You know, it's been something of a publishing sensation, really. Does it bother you or worry you that you're kind of in immense danger of becoming more well-known as a writer than a musician. Oh, I love it. I don't really care what my medium is. I'm not like, oh, rock and roll, let's deify rock and roll is the most sort of radical form of expressing yourself. I utterly don't think that. I think rock and roll, which is just a lazy way of saying contemporary music, has become just entertainment, really. It, it, it's, it's to, I, I may be wrong, and you can all laugh at me when I'm dead, but I think that kind of music has finished. I think it's gone into the sort of realms of ballet used to be, you know, really radical. Poetry used to be radical. Uh, classical music even used to be radical. There would be booing at the concerts and people walking out. And I think it's been homogenised. It's been absorbed into society. You cannot be a rebel in that medium anymore, pretending that there's anything radical about it. There, there really isn't. I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I think it's I think there's great music out there. It's beautifully written. Um, I think people have, young people have, have got the measure of the medium and they've conquered it. But if you can't be better or different to what's gone before, don't bother. All my punk ethos went into that book. All those things that I was so drawn to when I was young came exploding back like a volcano. Almost all of your music post-2010, since you've come back, it's really like a dry run for the second part of the book, isn't it? If I write exactly what I feel, and I'm completely honest, like in the book, um, and I fail, I won't care. But if I in any way modify it and pretend to be something I'm not and I fail, I will hate myself. Seeing Johnny Rotten when he'd come from a North London housing estate like I had um, and couldn't sing and couldn't play, I was proud of it. That gave me so much courage. What about people like Mick Jones from The Clash and Tessa from The Slits? How, how have people like that responded to the book? Yeah, um, I think more than anyone in the world I cared what Mick thought. But he said it reminded him of who he used to be. You know, that good person he was with, with the values and the integrity. And, and it inspired him to sort of resurrect that person in himself again. He was a really unusual person, really you know, groundbreaking guy. You obviously had a very complex relationship with Ari in a very strange sort of way, even though she was just a 14-year-old girl when you met her. You kind of looked up to her in some ways, didn't mm. you? You kind of admired her. But at the same time, it's, it's really, really clear you had chalk and cheese personalities. Yeah. Ari's voice was, was so unusual. And again, she was 14 when we started. She hadn't heard rock and roll. And she was an extraordinarily outgoing sort of iconoclastic person from a very young age. She could have only ever fitted into punk, I think. And she experimented with her voice and, and thought, thought about nature and birds and horses. She was mad about horses. She had pictures of ponies on a wall. She was 14. You know, I do think that often collaborations do work best when two people rub them, each other up just the right amount. to You know, it's like the friction that causes the pearl. And that, that was Ari and I. Ari, deep down, was an extraordinary person. And she wasn't embarrassed about making mistakes, twirling her voice, twirling her body, showing her pants, you know, pissing on stage. stage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the thing is, you know, the wonderful thing about Ari pissing on stage, 
you know, no woman would ever pee in front of a man in the 70s. You would rather die than any man know you had your period. For an uptight, trying to be pretty, but still trying to be a punk girl like me, she was that bridge. She was feminism sort of personified, actually, which I didn't kind of get enough until I really wrote the book. There was the one point where I got to a bit where I thought, I need to stop reading this for a day and come back to it. And it was probably around the period where you were trying to get pregnant. Now, I must say it's not because of squeamishness. You've gone beyond the point of anything that's sensible and now you're just hurting yourself and mm. it's actually really very upsetting to read about. Mm. And that wasn't the half of it. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the amount I had to leave out of the book in, in terms of the cancer, my dad. And I remember thinking, if I can't have a child, I don't want to live. I, I just am not interested in being alive. I... It was madness, um, and, and I did descend into madness trying. I get slightly indignant when people reduce the slits just to herd it through the grapevine and typical girls. Two, two great tracks, don't get me wrong. Mm. But for me, the, the power of the slits is the 11-minute version of In the Beginning There Was Rhythm, the John Peel version. Rhythm is the root of life. Rhythm is the root of life. You lose rhythm and you lose roots. You lose roots and you lose rhythm. You see. And that, for me, is as good and as forward-looking as anything that was made in the punk or post-punk era. I mean, really, by that point, the slits were miles ahead of the game, weren't they? Yeah, we were. You see, the thing is, when you think of the Pistols and the Clash, the Buzzcocks, all those bands, they'd all had role models, and all those boys had spent time looking in front of the mirror, doing that with their hair, um, you know, posing, posing, guitar, or low, high, whatever... Us girls had no role models, so in a way we were so fresh. We, we, we didn't have the habits, um, and we weren't sort of conforming to something that had gone before. Were, were you never really impressed with people like Leah Ford, Susie Quattro, Joan Jett? You know, I was totally into music. I knew all about those bands, and I saw them all live. I, I couldn't wait to see The Runaways live. I couldn't wait to see Fanny. I had no thought that I could be there. I mean, I couldn't play guitar or anything. There was nothing about the Runaways that made me think I could be that. Right. Whereas when I saw the Pistols, even though they were boys, some little things snapped. The Runaways, I mean, they were like the monkeys. They were put together, you know, they were a, they were a made-up group. You know, Lita Ford stood there. She played like a heavy metal male guitarist with her hair blowing back and all the same movements. No, I didn't think I could be that. I didn't even want to be that. Because we were very influenced by Vivian Westwood and the way she made clothes, which was turn it inside out, show the seams, show the label, we thought, well, let's do that with the rhythm and let's do that with the melody and let's do that with the chord structures. Let's not play 12-bar chord structures that, you know, a whole male line has, has turned into rock and roll. And, and we were very aware that we were a first and we felt very, very um, responsible um, that we would do it right and it, it would be as pure and as fresh and as new and as female as we could make it. All that, I think, fed into very extraordinary, unusual, timeless music. Viv, it was an absolute pleasure, mate. Oh, thank you very much. That was me, John Doran, talking to a British musician who has changed the course of popular culture. This is the British Masters podcast. Watch the visual versions of the episodes on YouTube by searching Noisy British Masters and subscribe here to get new episodes of the audio version. Godspeed, friends, and remember, listen to Electric Wizard. Electric Wizard.